0: Welcome to Heartland History, the official podcast of the Midwestern History Association. Ramya, how are you doing today?
1: I am doing well, and I'm really excited for the conversation that we're going to have uh, with Stephen Moore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a phenomenal book, um, and I am glad to be talking with him.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, maybe, again, to just introduce ourselves, um, I'm Camden Byrd. Uh, historian at Eastern Illinois University. And yes, Ramya, who who are you?
1: I am Ramya so I am prakash with a name that is unpronounceable, and I am ostensibly an assistant professor at Grand Valley State University.
0: Yes, you are, yes, you are. Um, and we are here, as Ramya said, to talk about um, an incredible book of essays. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Ramya, tell us about this this collection.
1: Um, so Stephen Moore is, holds an MFA in Creative Nonfiction from Oregon State University, not THE Oregon State University. Um, his first book, The Longer We Were There, a memoir of part-time, of a part-time soldier, received uh, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Award, Creative Nonfiction, and was published by the University of Georgia Press in 2019. His essay collection, The Distance from um, Slaughter Country, Lessons from Flyover Country, which is what we're talking about today, um, is actually releasing in March, or has released in March, given that we're already in March, um, from the University of North Carolina Press. His nonfiction has appeared in literary journals such as The Normal School, um, The Georgia Review, Iron Horse Literary Review, The North American Review, uh, The Anthology Why We Write, Craft Essays on Writing War. And was named as notable best American essays twenty twenty one. He currently resides in the great city of Portland in Oregon, um, where he um, joined us from. And I think we had a really interesting conversation. So, what stood out to you, Camden? Yes,
0: this is from Slaughter County. I very much enjoyed this. I think. I think our, our perhaps annoyingly so. I think the the listeners will. Um, Sense my excitement about a rather long discussion of home improvement, mm-hmm. uh, the popular '90s TV show, uh, which even more uh, does an interesting exploration of sort of politics and culture and life mm-hmm. uh, in the '90s. And so, I, I I really enjoyed that. I mean, I think I w- when we were ta- ta- when I was talking to him prior to recording, I was pointing out that it's it's nice when you read a collection of essays by someone who sort of grew up in the same time period as you. So you start Mm -hmm. to sort of see with a new set of eyes, this sort of cultural criticism, but also these like Mm -hmm. reflective uh, essays. Um, And I think it really does speak to sort of maybe particular moments, particular places um, of an era of, of life within the Midwest that maybe resonate with me and might resonate with some other listeners, but I think also Mm -hmm. provides, um, provides, a sort of well-distanced eye into exploring life uh, in the Midwest in the nineties.
1: I like that. Well-distanced eye doesn't make us sound old at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't mean that. Better, really. I thought I, I really enjoyed sort of, like you said, you know, point looking back at our lived experience. I really actually enjoyed that uh, exchange with, with you and you know Stephen between you and Stephen about home improvement because I only saw home improvement much later in India um, but I still got some of the references mm-hmm. and you know it, it wasn't until the our conversation that I thought back of how home improvement was actually in metro Detroit mm-hmm. uh, was you know based in metro Detroit which is where like I when I first moved to the US I was in metro Detroit and it's just you know the things you don't remember and like it came back to me and I was like, shit, that's so cool. Um, yeah, yeah, I had yeah. forgotten about that, that this was, you know, to, like you, I remember the suburbia and all of that, but I had forgotten that we met with Detroit, right? So, um, yeah, I think the the book and the conversation uh, holds a lot of resonance in, mm-hmm. in so many different ways. Um, and, and I think...
0: And, yeah, and to note, yeah. right, I mean, this is, of course, not just a book about home improvement, but a, a collection of essays. That yeah. was one that resonated. Um, it really is ranging um that like you know range from family video to home improvement to life in iowa to leaving iowa and feeling pride for a sense of place but also sort of having a conflicted relationship to home um i think those are themes that are rich for conversation when thinking about any region but the midwest in particular
1: yeah and i think the sort of he sort of is able to track into the sense of distance in both sort of you know the physical Mm -hmm. distance of of not living in the Midwest and therefore sort of, again, you know, much like um, our, our previous episode sort of thinking about distance as it means to be an outsider, but like, but still being able to sort of track some of the emotional balance that, you know, whether it's a, a collective past or whatever, sort of bring to the fore. Um, and it's just really like, it's such an accessible book and I'm really glad that, mm-hmm. you know, you DM'd me about this, and we sort of decided to go ahead with this because it was such a pleasure to read. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of
0: ideas for in the classroom or and whatnot. So, yes. Um, yes, Anyway, I hope that that comes through in the conversation because we were very excited to have it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, any housekeeping that you can think of, Camden?
0: I think it bears repeating. Uh, for several episodes now, that the annual conference of the Midwestern History Association is coming up in Grand Rapids in May. Uh, and if you're just thinking about it now, it's okay. You can still go. So you should still mm-hmm. go um, mm-hmm. and uh, hang out with Ramya and I. Yeah,
1: we can get some beer. And
0: others. I, sh- I swear there'll be more than just the two of us.
1: Yes, thank you. But yes.
0: <laughs> All righty. Well, shall we? shall we get into it?
1: Yes,
0: let's do it. Stephen, welcome to Heartland History, the official podcast of Midwestern History Association. Uh, Maybe, you know, before we jump into this conversation, you can give us a little bit more of your personal background and your biography uh, to help us sort of contextualize this great uh, book that we had the opportunity to read
2: yeah thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with both of you. Um, I'm really looking forward to the conversation um, yeah I grew I grew up in, in Iowa in Southeast Iowa in a pretty small town um, called Washington It's just a little south of Iowa City. Um, I went to undergrad at the University of Iowa um, so I lived I lived right around that space for the first time 22-ish, 23 years of my life, Um, I moved to uh, California in 2012, and then I went to graduate school at Oregon State University for creative nonfiction in 2014, so I've been living in Oregon since uh, 2014, Um, and that was kind of, some of that movement is what precipitated writing the book. I'm trying to think about place from a couple of different angles, and trying to think through like how you know regional history and culture and things like that are how they pop up in ways that I probably hadn't really expected and anticipated until I started until I started kind of thinking about it. But um, that's the that's the the brief version.
0: <laughs> well, we're gonna pack it as time yeah. goes on. I yeah. I mean. That was something that really stood out to me as I was reading um, the book. And, you know, I, I really do want to talk a little bit more about your relationship to the Midwest and to Iowa as someone who is both, you know, from there, uh, but no longer lives there. Right. Uh, and that sort of comes with mixed perspectives. Right. You write in, uh, um, in the book that the rhetorical situation of a transplant is complicated. I was born in Iowa, grew up there, attended college there, but I've lived on the West Coast for nine years now, mostly in Oregon. I spend a lot of time reading about the Midwest because I'm interested in the ways Midwesterners represent themselves, how they most ferociously uh, or or how they must ferociously uh, contend with the stereotypes, how they must describe an experience of place while dislodging whatever mistaken idea of that place a reader might have anticipated. So I'm curious, uh, how have you experienced this position as both an insider and an outsider? Um, And and then sometimes I wonder if this phenomenon is sort of inherently Midwestern, uh, but also I'm inclined because this is the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm just inclined to believe it is uh, for the sake of this conversation. Uh, But we could talk about that. Um, But yeah, sorry, I've just thrown a bunch at you. Perhaps you could talk a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. I, I I mean, I think it probably is, like, I think it's something that Midwesterners especially are, like, it's a perspective they tend to have, but I've also heard the same thing from people who, like, grew up in the South, or they grew up in Appalachia, or they grew up in, like, a region that's often, like, talked about by people who um, don't necessarily have lived experience there, and so I think it's, like, yeah, I think it's a Midwestern thing, but I think it's a broad thing, too, and... I started thinking about it or paying really close attention to it, like, especially around like 2016, um, when there was a lot of like, kind of like political backlash to the Midwest after the election. And it was because I wasn't living there anymore. And I felt like I had, like, had a lot of interest in hearing from Midwesterners, like, how they were representing their space, and in particular, how they were representing their lives to people who they perceived as not sharing um, mm-hmm. what they knew and so it felt like kind of being on the inside and the outside at the same time mm-hmm. like in a way I was really I really wanted people who were living there at that time to like give me the report about what was going on but at the same time I had like I know a lot of people who still live there I have a lot of connections mm-hmm. there and I have like my own like memory of what Um, living in Iowa in particular is like so I felt like I could kind of do both things at once or I was in this position of doing both at once which is like trying to learn something I don't know but also like framing it in what I do know and like trying to think of it from both ends at the same time and I think that's a more common rhetorical position than Mm -hmm. like I think writers often tend to think they they imagine somebody who knows absolutely nothing about their own experience. And they try to like present a lecture about all the things you have misunderstood about this place that they uniquely do understand. And I think like that position of like trying to give the lecture is a much harder thing to do than it seems like, I mean, like even like, professors try not to lecture anymore because it's so hard to give a good lecture. That's actually like engaging and like, Mm -hmm. like gets people involved and gets people learning. And so I was trying to think of a way kind of out of that trap of like imagining that somebody has stereotyped me. And then in response to that, stereotyping that person about what I assume Mm
1: -hmm. their Mm -hmm. life
2: is like, right. So trying to figure out a way where, the conversation isn't just about like dispensing all of the knowledge I have about what my uh, experience in a place is like and um, having this patient reader who will thoughtfully accept all of my, you know, insight, but like trying to figure out like, what are the things that I still don't know and still want to know and where the like source materials where I can bring other people into the conversation, like where can I set myself in position to other thinkers and other writers and um whether it's pop culture or history or whatever the case is and like try to keep the conversation going but not getting locked into this like kind of argument about um what the what life really is like in one place or another
1: yeah um this this makes a great uh, sort of prelude to the the question that we've been asking every author uh in every episode now um because i you know as Camden and I are trying to understand how our authors understand the region, the Midwest, like what is the Midwest? Um, And so I was wondering if you could speak a little on, you know, how you define the Midwest spatially, temporally, culturally.
2: Yeah. You know, I didn't really think that I had strong feelings about like a spatial definition until I was reading an anthology of essays about the Midwest and there was more representation from Pennsylvania than Iowa, and I was pissed off about it. I said, like, that's not, like, that's absurd. Like, you have more writers in here from Pennsylvania than you have, there's one person in here from Iowa. And I realized maybe I do have some strong feelings about what that's about <laughs> Um But I haven't really, like, thought of it in those terms. Like, I tend to think, like, if somebody represents themselves from being in that space, then they're probably right. Um, And that's kind of, like, the limit of kind of how I've drawn borders around it. But I do think, like, I do think one of the things that's really, like, primary about, like, regionalism is, like, what kind of thing you're encouraged to imagine first. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I think about, like, the difference between how people are encouraged to think of the American West versus, like, Mm -hmm. the American West Coast. Like, the West Mm -hmm. is, like land it's like isolation and like Mm -hmm. openness and the west coast is population centers it's like specifically Mm -hmm. probably like san francisco la seattle Mm -hmm. and like maybe portland but like probably not san diego because it's more like the military community kind of like Mm -hmm. changes what that means like the or the, the actual Oregon coast is entirely rural space. Like there's just small towns. There are no cities on the Oregon coast, like per se. But like when you think of the West Coast, you're like encouraged to first imagine population and like people and like densely populated people. And the Midwest, I think of as like in terms of like a regionalist kind of view, is like the opposite. You're encouraged to think of like um, open space again, like flatness and like the agricultural Mm -hmm. industry and the sort of like moods that follow from that, like in terms of like myth are like independence and um, like self-sufficiency and then like kind of like boredom in a way. Like, and then everything from there is the like correction and overcorrection of those like first imagined things. Like it's not Mm -hmm. just, it's not just the type. It's like everybody having to then, add complexity and shade in and add and like remind people like Minneapolis is here too. And Chicago is here and Kansas city is here and St. Louis is here. And like the agriculture industry is a lot different than you might've heard of. And like Mm -hmm. Iowa city is like a really interesting unique place. And there's Madison, Milwaukee. And like, it's, it's also the response to everybody's like kind of first imagined, um, ideas. And I feel like a lot of the, um, the, kind of the, the controversy is like trying to figure out who gets to be um, part of that conversation and like what priority mm-hmm. they get and trying to and trying to like restructure um, what that first image is
0: mm-hmm. mm. oh there's so much to unpack there I mean, I, <laughs> no it's so good and I think that it's like a really thoughtful answer because i like this idea of thinking about space and myth and then sort of mm-hmm. shading in because it does a, a prov- provide a space to understand sort of the complexities of like debates about who is midwestern who's not midwestern and also these conversations that happens among midwesterners about which place are more midwestern right. than other parts of the midwest which is like this sort of yeah. perennial conversation that plays out as well
1: yeah and and you know to sidestep from that i think it also sort of gets at the tension um that you raise throughout the book about you know the idea of the flyover country Mm -hmm. right sort of even you so much of it is is myth making in the opposite direction Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's flyover country so it's empty culturally intellectually however right um so it becomes so easy to then sort of create that reverse myth of what the Midwest is and isn't, right? Based on how we, um, how we route, um, a myth to a place, right? And it's
2: so hard to do from a distance, but it's even hard to do, like, I just, I mean, I wrote about it a little bit, just, but like moving from a small town in Iowa, like 30 miles North to Iowa city, it was a completely different place. Like, Mm -hmm. And, like, I had gone there as an English major. I really wanted to write. I was in a dorm specifically dedicated to people who wanted to write. And so we were always, like, venerating the grad students who had come there for the Iowa Writers Workshop, and they were just, like, the rock stars of, like, Mm -hmm. our, like, cultural world. And they had all come to Iowa because it was, like, the most important place to be, maybe outside of, like, New York or whatever. But, like, Mm -hmm. having that, like, Iowa felt, like, the very, very center of, like, literature as I wanted Mm -hmm. to produce it. Like, everybody talking about, like, which house did Vonnegut write Slaughterhouse-Five and, you know, that kind of thing. Like, that sort of myth is completely different version of what Iowa means um, than the one that I had, like, kind of held even just, like, earlier than that. And having those two senses of the place, like, from within the place, let alone, like, from... Hundred miles away, and have never lived in either of those places, it becomes just like a whole another, a whole other thing.
1: Yeah, um, not to take too much time, but like when I was growing up in India, um, I'd like to believe that I was reasonably well informed, um, and you know, the U.S. government had these—they um, call the American centers—you know—they had libraries. Um, so I remember going after college to you know pick out some good literature and read. Um, and the Iowa Writers Workshop, like, was something that I knew of. But if you ask me on a map where Iowa was, I wouldn't know, right? Um, and when I first, like, over 10 years ago, on my first visit to the U.S., I knew the East Coast. I knew the West Coast. Um, and then I had, like, a, um, a layover in Chicago. And I was just like, I know Chicago, but, like, I didn't, like, I have no spatial understanding of the Midwest, right? Um, and now I live here. Um, but yeah, so it was, it's, it's interesting also like the, the ways in which the Midwest is, um, mythologized in across the world as well. Like I knew of the Iowa Writers Workshop, but did I know anything else about Iowa? Like had I even heard of Iowa City? Not really. Yeah. Yeah. Like you had, even if you paid me, I wouldn't be able to tell you where Iowa was or Indiana.
0: I think uh, another thing that I was appreciating, I was, I I was saying, I was texting Ramya as I was reading uh, the book, and I was just like, you know, I I feel like you've really done a great job of knowing your own, or it's clear in your writing how uncomfortable you are both in sort of your identity as a Midwesterner, as someone, but also someone who no longer lives in the Midwest, and you can sort of in live in those two spaces in some way and understand the conflict and you talk about this great story and this kind of goes to this notion of like people reacting to the perception that they believe other people view them as right Right. um this reactionary contempt is what i'm going to call it (laughs) Mm -hmm. that is developed um from this this sort of larger cultural belief or you know a a label the Midwest or flyover country, right? And I, and I think to some degree, the contempt is justified, right? I, I'm not I'm not sure it's healthy or it's productive, but it's there, right? Um, it exists, and you sort of explore this when referencing a particular YouTube clip, which I had not seen before, but I got to look up, called Iowa Nice. You think we're all hillbillies? Well, four out of five of us live in the city's punk. What about farmers, you say? You think farmers are hillbillies?
2: Sit down, son. One Iowa farmer feeds 155 of you.
3: Do you like to eat? Looks like it.
0: But I'm curious. What What do you think the underlying project or emotion is to a video uh, like that? Um, and, and what do you think like is the appeal, the response? I mean, that when I clicked on it, it had 1.5 million views. So this is not an insignificant mm-hmm. uh, piece of you know YouTube culture.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's. It's, seems, it's hell-bent on asserting the complexity of identity, right? It's, it's super interested in like, overturning what you thought you knew about a place, but it's also doing that from a point of just like, really intense frustration. And I think part of that is because it's couched in the election cycle, and it's like, mm-hmm. this is 2012. And it's like, haven't we been over this before? Like, haven't we done this already? Like, haven't we, like, had this conversation where everyone gets this wrong and we have to stand up for ourselves? And there's a sort of resignation about it. And I've noticed there's a similar kind of, like, emotional reaction here in Oregon whenever a politician, like, in D.C. characterizes Portland as this, like, war-ravaged, like just brutal landscape where there's just crime constantly, people in Portland will just kind of, like, start posting on social media about the nice day they're having. and Like, yeah, I went out today and shopped at a small business and, like, you know, had nice lunch with my friends and, like, it's sunny outside and, like, this is the beautiful neighborhood where I live in and, like, honestly, fuck you for not, like, understanding that this is possible, like, for taking a caricature of our community and kind of writing it this hard. And
0: it's- Steven, wait, are you telling us that they're wrong and Portland still does exist right now?
2: It does. It does exist. Okay, good. And it's it's like this, I mean, on the one hand, it's not going to be convincing to anybody who believes otherwise, but mm-hmm. it is this, like, sense that, like, we aren't, def- like, the, the nature of a community isn't defined by whatever conflicts you've chosen to focus on, that it's a lot more complicated you know, it's more complex than that. And it's this sort of, like, defensive impulse to say, like, the way that you're structuring this conversation is, like, wholly ineffective, not remotely comprehensive. And, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's really clever, but it's also, like, going too far in that direction is also, like, kind of, like, again, reducing something from the other, like, from the other side. And, um the thing that I kept trying to think about when I was putting these essays together is like how different kinds of that like divisiveness or different Mm -hmm. kinds of that polarization, like what one can like what we can learn across them, you know? So like the book opens with a paragraph where people like on the West coast are like talking about uh, like, growing up in the midwest and growing up in these small towns like it's like a war they've been through like they've been through this like incredible hardship and i found myself like very frequently comparing the like urban rural divide or the like coastal midwestern divide to the civilian military divide and like the Mm. struggle of like that veterans have trying to communicate their experience in uniform to people who don't share that experience and a lot of it like i've i don't know i've read a bunch of memoirs and i've read a bunch of like personal essays by people who've been trying to do this and there's this similar kind of like um frustration like a similar kind of contempt where people are really really inspired to share and they feel this kind of urgency to tell like to share with other people who don't know what their life is about what what they don't know and Mm -hmm. that's like that's a really hard thing to do and it doesn't always go very well and then when it doesn't go very well there's this just like increasing like animosity and like hostility about like Mm -hmm. why don't they understand like i already told them i told it to them already and they don't get it and i didn't overturn their preconceptions immediately and then it becomes this kind of like bitterness where like i tried reaching across this space and sharing this thing that's so important and i think it's really important for people to understand and it didn't go well and now i'm just like kind of hostile about it and that like that sort of dynamic i feel like that plays out in all kinds of like in all kinds of ways and not just like in a civilian military way but in like a geographic way and in all kinds of like cultural spaces where if it doesn't go well and they don't hear the story the way you wanted them to hear the story then kind of start to shut down and it's just like well it's not my job to tell you about it then and I'm just like not gonna participate anymore and that's like a choice you can make but that's also like a really risky choice because then you're just leaving people to figure it out on their own Um, but that I that the, the emotional tenor of that YouTube video I feel like I've read it in a bunch of places I feel like I've seen it all over and that's kind of one of the reasons I spend so much time talking about it in the book, but I feel like that kind of instinct is the same instinct that kind of informs a lot of, a lot of similar kinds of dynamics.
0: Yes. You don't know me and let me tell you what you don't know, but also in a way that like doesn't, it's not necessarily creating those sort of empathetic bonds in the other direction. It's, it, you know, it's,
2: yeah. It. I mean, it's a really, it's a really remarkable video. Um, But also, it's also remarkable because it's aged a little bit now. Like, it's almost, it's 10 years old, you know? And I remember watching it when it first came out, and then I was revisiting it, and, like, it's, things have changed a little bit. And it Mm -hmm. it made me think of, like, I wonder, like, it's, it comes from such a place of pride, you know, of, like, wanting to stand up for your community. And in a lot of ways, that's really, like, admirable. But it's also, like, like, pride is a really complicated thing, and how do you take, responsibility for, um, the, like, you know, the, all the differences and the challenges too, um, and let those live kind of along the same space.
0: So this, this is, again, as I was reading, I was just sort of like speeding up as things went on. I think a lot of the readers who grew up in the nineties and early aughts will be amused and delighted by your exploration of the touchstone TV show home improvement. Uh, which you explore and thinking about, you know, gender, politics, cultural divides. I mean, it's really a thoughtful exploration of home improvement, probably really elevating the quality of that show quite a bit through your writing. Um, but I really did enjoy a breakdown of one particular scene. And it was so weird because not long ago I was thinking, you you know, you note that in the 90s and early 2000s, there's like this this series of sitcom TV shows that are set in the Midwest. Right. And so I was like, oh, there's got to be something there. Like we've got Detroit. Uh, um, you talk about what uh, Family Matters in Chicago yeah. and uh, Drew Carey Show in Cleveland. Right. Uh, so there's a lot going on there. And so I was like, oh, maybe there's an essay here. And I, I went back and I was watching old episodes of Home Improvement. And you describe one episode that I was watching. I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, Jill, Tim's wife in the show, is trying to read uh, uh, Susan Faludi's Backlash, uh, <laughs> while Tim uh, is. The, you know, the more, as his quote is, "more power." Uh, uh, the protagonist is loudly playing music over her. Could you turn that down, please? What? Turn it down. It's hurting my ears. I've hurt ears. I barely have it on. Oh,
2: turn it down. Don't, turn don't it you break down. down.
0: See, that much better. <laughs> is the stereo on, huh?
2: Tim, when you listen to it that loud, it just sounds terrible.
0: Music is to be experienced. That's why you got to crank it Isn't that better? I, as I was watching that scene, I was like, this is... Possibly incredibly smart, but if so, incredibly evil. I, uh, um, I, I'd be curious your read on that as well. Um, other than the fact that I clearly need more cultural criticism of 90s sitcoms, which is what came through with this. Um, I'm, I'm curious what led you to the show, a show set in the Midwest, an era when many sitcoms were set in the Midwest. How do you think it relates to your childhood, home, uh, or perhaps even American society during that time period?
2: Yeah, I mean, I started I started thinking about it because I was, I kind of mentioned it in a different essay, or I had tried to. I think it was the essay I was writing about country music. I was trying to establish, like, that I, I grew up in this household that listened to, um, like, pop country music, uh, mm-hmm. and I was trying to, like, characterize, like, the, our household when I was growing up in general, and I had some throwaway line, like, ours was the kind of household that watched Home Improvement, and one of my readers, like, very astutely early on, was like, I don't know what you mean by that. Like, what is that, what is that supposed to, like, represent, you know? Like, what does that signify? Like, say I've seen the show, what does it signify? Say I haven't seen the show, what, what, the, what am I supposed to, to make out of that? And so the more I tried to think about it, I was going back and watching episodes, and I was like, this is, like, it means a lot, I think, but it has to live in its own space. And so I started just kind of carving out and I was like, I want to just go back and like spend some time with it in particular. And like, it's that show because it was on, like, I remember it being on like new episodes toward the end, but it was also on syndication where it was like, Mm -hmm. it was like the local news and then the national news and then Home Improvement. That was the like trifecta of television, (laughs) like right after dinner. And so it was on every weekday, sometimes more than once if there was also a new episode later that day. Um, But it's probably, like, one of the shows that I've seen more than anything else. Um, So I was kind of digging into it. And I think one of the things that was really remarkable to me about the episode that you mentioned that I spent some time with is, like, that was kind of the structure of an episode. Like, that was the, like, so it's this nuclear family in suburban Detroit. It's Jill and Tim. They have three kids, Mark, Randy, and Brad. And they're kind of like these middle-class white people. And the, the structure of um, an episode would be like Tim would make a mistake. Uh, Jill would want him to understand something about her life or emotional experience. He would uh, fail to do that and get himself in trouble. And he would go outside to their neighbor across the fence, Wilson, um, for advice, and Wilson is this, like, you know, he's, like, this thoughtful, like, he's more spiritual, he's, like, kind of quieter, he's not as brash as Tim, he's not as loud, he's, like, weirdly well-read on a lot of topics, he knows about, like, science, and, like, zoology, and, like, mm-hmm. philosophy, and he's this really eclectic guy, and the structure of an episode would be, like, Wilson would would give this very poignant, like mini lecture to Tim about like how to be a better human being. And then Tim would misunderstand that sort of or like misreport it back to Jill. He would go apologize to Jill and he would come, he would butcher the explanation that he had gotten from Wilson. Jill would be like, what are you talking? Like, what are you even talking about? And then he'd have to put it in his own words. He'd have to like kind of re-explain the lesson like as he internalized it because he couldn't explain it using the exact words that Wilson had used. And it was this kind of, like, he was so interested in striving to be a better person, but the show was also completely ruthless toward the idea of, like, male sensitivity at all. Mm-hmm. Like, and it was this, like, continual conflict, like, especially with a sitcom that kind of re- restarts every episode from the same position that it started the previous episode. Every every kind of, like, advance he would make in being a more, like better listener a more emotionally sensitive guy he would kind of take that step back and have to start over at the next episode and that was one of the things that was really interesting to me about it is that like first of all that they would like situate this character as being like genuinely interested in wanting to be a better father wanting to be a better husband Mm -hmm. but also like deeply resentful of all of the things he's being asked to do uh along the way like One of the other scenes I really wanted to write about and didn't really have space for was, like, the first scene of Season 2, which is, like, going to be the early 90s, and so they've had one full season of the show, and the first, the way they start off Season 2 is, like, Tim's job. He is uh, the host of a cable show called Tool Time, and we start Season 2 on the set of Tool Time, and it's, like, safety week. So they're going through all this, like, safety stuff. But then... They take a step, like a step back, to do this like mailbag, where he reads letters from like listeners that are like mm-hmm. supposedly of mm-hmm. Tool Time, right? <laughs> but it's this very obvious way for them to sneak in like criticism of Home Improvement, probably. And the letter is from this guy named like it's like Charles Eddington. It's this very like English-sounding kind mm-hmm. of pretentious mm-hmm. name. And Charles Eddington has written in to Tool Time about. Like his complaints that uh, Tim is too loud and he grunts too much. And he says something like, you've taken this masculinism too far and I'm offended by it. And it's this like, I wonder where that criticism came from, actually. And Tim Mm -hmm. takes the letter and he makes his uh, co-host Al put it into a vice. He like, like clamps it into a vice. And then he summons a flamethrower from backstage. They happen to have a flamethrower, like, on hand and ready to go. And he incinerates it. Like, that's the way that they start out season two. Just this, like, abject, like, contempt for, um, like, kind of, like, sensitivity in general. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, like, the, the dynamic, like, one of the main dynamics in the show is, like, Tim also recognizing that, like, his, like his sense of, like, a kind of a masculinity that we would call, like, toxic now is, like, mm-hmm. he, he has to, like, improve himself as a person in order to be, like, the kind of father that he wants to be. And, like, those things going back and forth is, like, a little bit um, remarkable. And then it was extra remarkable in that, like, in that scene on the couch, Jill is reading Backlash. She's, like, reading a book mm-hmm. about um, the political backlash against feminism in the 80s and that the show... Like is very aware of mm-hmm. the like political and cultural conversations that it's like part of and responding to. Um, so there, I mean, there was just a lot to dig in in, and like it was kind of a way of trying to figure out like what are the what are the frameworks that would be really useful to unpack it and compare it mm-hmm. to the present day, and like how to do that in a way that's means something to people who've seen the show, but also means something mm-hmm. to people who haven't.
0: Yeah, and, and not an insignificant show. I mean, this was this was yeah. primetime television. Uh, yeah. This was not you know just some off branch show that ran for like eight seasons. Yeah, um, Tim Allen was a household name. I mean, he had a whole career that spun off off from it. Um, yeah, I, yeah. So I, I you know to, to just sort of, I think it's worth unpacking as sort of a cultural <laughs> artifact and a, and a political artifact in certain yeah. ways as well.
1: Yeah, and. and- you know as somebody growing up in India it was a thing in my life too like you know I saw it much later than you guys did but it (laughs) like it still was it did shape my sense of what America looked like right Um, whether it was sort of physically in terms of like the you know the fencing and all because I grew up in an apartment nobody has a buddy house in India uh, unless you're super rich um so like you know the 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 thing of living in a house and and the the fence and you know the the kinds of things kids do in the, in the backyard but the things they talk about um it all like helped me think about what America looked like what Americans did with that time mm-hmm. um, and yes yeah, so I think the show was significant in so many ways um, And, you know, there's one thing of, like, how it points inward in terms of what it says about the Midwest. And I think there is an afterlife to this show as well of, like, how it got picked up. Um, Because the two, like, big things when I was growing up, we saw happy days. Like, the fawns was a thing, right? In the bloody 90s in India. Um, And so, yeah, so it's just, it's... There's this entire afterlife of of how the Midwest is portrayed in in different spaces, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because I didn't, like, the way I thought of suburbs and the way, like, thinking of Metro Detroit based on this show was very different. Because, like, suburbia, when I was growing up in India, looked very different from what suburbia here looks like, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or that there is a thing like Metro Detroit, like what does it mean right? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah i think the, the the show has a lot to unpack and and tim tim Allen now has that new show based out of denver where he is mm-hmm. yeah i forget the name of the show um but it's like i keep thinking of the parallels and like th- there is one episode in which he like brings back some of the things from home improvement into that show like
0: Oh, for um, sure for
1: sure it's it, I think
0: in the show in itself is like this midwestern story in which a suburban Detroit guy moved west I mm-hmm. mean like that is in itself a midwestern <laughs> story
1: So it's just it's you know there's like that show needs a few like books on it I think yes because um, there's just so much in it.
0: We're commissioning you Stephen, to get started yeah. on that so
2: well I mean even some of the like the cultural anxieties that show up. Like, there's mm-hmm. this, there's an episode where, like, Randy does pot, you know? And it's this, mm-hmm. like, yeah. PSA yeah. about the dangers of drugs. There's a whole uh-huh. arc where um, the youngest boy, Mark, um, comes, like, goth. And uh-huh. the, the uh-huh. parents uh-huh. are just, like, they're having a crisis. Like, what does it mean uh-huh. that he's wearing black all the time and he's all uh-huh. quiet uh-huh. and sad and his friends are all quiet and sad? And, like, not... I think not a lot of these things are handled like in a way that's are super graceful now but like the idea is that like in different ways like all of the boys are like violating both tim and jill's like expectations of what they should be uh-huh. as like as adults and like because their show ran for so long you really watch all of them grow up uh-huh. like, the how how young they are when the show starts versus how young they are when it ends is, like, really significant. So you see, like, a lot of, like, um, like, their pubescent, like, struggles and everything. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, there's a lot, there's for sure, there's a lot there.
1: (laughs) So that's your next project, Um, (laughs) right? Um, And you'll have at least two people buying that book for sure. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. And we'll assign it to class as well. Um, (laughs) But, um, yeah, I'm one of, like, you know sort of drawing from this um in a later essay you explore the history of Ida Tarbell um the author of the history of the Standard Oil Company which is published in 1904 um the book was a takedown of John D Rockefeller and Standard Oil um that helped lead the legal uh, led to the legal breakup of the monopoly right uh, you reflect on how you eagerly read Tarbell's work and you write succinctly Um, I want, I want to know how this, uh, I want, yeah, I want to know how this history leads, leads to me. And I can't help but notice every reference to Iowa. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little more about that feeling and, you know, we'd be interested to hear how histories like that of Ida Tarbell influence your relationship to writing. Um, Yeah. And, and I'm also interested in, you know, we're interested in in how you sort of think and reflect on the role of uh, history in writing a memoir or reflect you know or reflective essays
2: yeah i i started that that essay i wanted to write about working at my family's gas station um it's of this family business that um, we had in 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 a town where i grew up and I worked there as a teenager, like most people in my family worked there. It was, um, I just wanted to write about scenes about being at work. Sometimes I feel like there's a lot of writers who just don't spend very much time writing about like work. And I just like gave it to myself as a project. I wanted to write a bunch of scenes about being a teenager in this like, in this space of gas station. Like, especially back before people could look up maps on their phones. Like, it was always, like, we were on the corner of town, so people were always coming to town to ask for directions. And, like, I wanted to, like, just write that space as much as I could. But, like, in personal writing, there's always, like, this moment where you kind of, like, run out of energy a little bit. And the, the personal just, like, needs context and, like, needs... Um, a broader aperture and so I had started then like just reading about BP because it was a BP station and reading about BP meant reading about uh, like largely the Deepwater Horizon um, incident and I didn't really have a lot to say about that so I went back a little further and before BP it was Amoco which was like an abbreviated version of the American Oil Company and Amoco has a lot of relationships in the Midwest. They started their first gas station in Minneapolis. They have a lot of ties to Chicago. They're credited with kind of inventing the idea of the gas station. They're credited with inventing the idea of the gas tanker truck. Um, but I didn't like, like, that's interesting, but I don't really feel like I wasn't sure how to respond to it or put it in writing. So I went back a little further. And before Amico, the station was, um, Was a standard. So then I was reading about Standard Oil, which meant reading about Rockefeller and um, reading about like the breakup of Standard Oil and reading about Ida Tarbell's book, like that there was an act of Congress to um, dissolve Standard as a monopoly, and that this like investigation was like partially prompted by Ida Tarbell's journalism and I just thought like god that must have been a hell of a book you know like it must have been really something and I had never heard of it like I'd heard of um, like I remember learning the word muckraker in school I remember being told about like Upton Sinclair and the jungle but I had never heard of Ida Tarbell so I started reading her work um, i read her autobiography i read other people's autobiographies about her and i started like in a way like thinking about how does this lead to me was like a really it was like literal in a sense i was trying to figure out like how does this like how do we all get here like how does this all like the the like narrative like logic of it But I was also just, like, I think there were some things where, like, when someone's writing on a topic that you care a lot about, your ears just, like, perk up a little bit more. And so when I was first reading about the history of the Standard Oil Company, there's this story about her parents wanting to move to Iowa. Her dad, like, Ida Tarbell's dad, wanted to farm in Iowa, and he went there and tried to, like, find land, and he did but he ended up kind of like there was this like financial crisis. He couldn't get the money he needed to uh, start their lives in Iowa. So he kind of had to pack up and go back to Pennsylvania where they were living. And it's like, because he didn't make it there, he became very invested in the oil business because they were living in um, oil country when the oil was struck for the first time, they were like right, right there. And so Ida Tarbell grew up, in that culture just like kind of by chance. And um, so I felt like that little story like got me a little extra hooked and a little bit more mm-hmm. invested in her life because she's um, she grows up there. She gets interested in science. She decides mm-hmm. later on that she wants to be a journalist. Um, mm-hmm. She goes to Paris for a while um, to study um, this like radical uh, Parisian. Um, she writes a lot about Napoleon, she gets a job at McClure's, mm-hmm. and McClure's wants to do a series on antitrust law. They think it will be really important for the readers to understand antitrust law, and they have Ida as one of their um, contacts, and so they ask her to do it, and it's because she has all this understanding of that business and that culture, and because she was around it, that she, like, really takes on the project and she's like later criticized for it that a lot of people think she was just like holding a grudge and she was mad at Rockefeller for the way he like he kind of um, conducted his business and that it was just sort of a personal thing but it was also her personal experience in this area that led her to be so good at what she did
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and so I just I felt like reading her work it was so it was new to me and it was different enough from what I had kind of expected that every Mm -hmm. time there was a reference that I was a little bit familiar with, I was just like kind of all over it and um, extra invested. And just like, not, not just like, how does this all, how did this all happen? How does the breakup of standard oil lead to Amoco and BP, but also like what are the things Mm -hmm. that like we can otherwise learn from all of this, like what are the other like kind of, lessons in here um and then being able to try to put that on the page so that like i'm going i'm like learning along with the reader and trying to to keep a reader invested in that same way like we're kind of going on this journey together um i found that super exciting and i found it super like invigorating and um but it's also a balance too like bringing in history in that way as like kind of like an amateur like i'm not a professional historian like i'm not a academic in that sense but like trying to like dip into some of that information and use it as a as a frame or as a context um i feel like it's it helps me kind of stretch and try to uh work Mm -hmm. in a new way that hopefully like makes the rest of the essay shape up
1: yeah yeah and and you know in this conversation uh, as you were talking about how like you lean in his, lean on to history yeah. In, yeah. in trying to shape the conversation um, in, and this is you know, not on the list of questions we sent you. But, um, but in the essay, True North, um, you know, th- these lines really stuck with me. Um, you say something may be obvious, yeah. uh, but strange about being a transplant is the way you have to start over learning the history. The part of your identity that forms uh, in response to geography duplicates, which means that the part of your identity that forms, um, yeah, so um, which means the part of your identity that forms in response to, to history duplicates, and this really um, stuck, you know, stuck yeah. with me and struck me because you know I am a bit of a transplant in the into the Midwest. Um, mm-hmm. And so much of my life in the last 10 years has been trying to rewire the history um, in my head, right? Um, And there are oftentimes days where I'm just like, wait, what? What is even happening, right? Like my brain is in one place and like it's sort of trying to get itself uh, to come to another place. Um, Mm -hmm. And to me, when I read these lines, um, to me, this was sort of like it read as a... A sort of commentary on sort of intergenerational stories and you know the myths about places that we were talking about earlier and so i was wondering if you could sort of talk a little about how this relates to you know to the midwest and you know this sort of the the rewiring of of geographies and histories in our head especially as the midwest is sort of changing so much um, what that means right
2: yeah, I mean, I was I was definitely thinking about it because, like, in a, maybe in a similar way, like, moving to Oregon, there's just a lot of things that are very, very present, but are formed, like, historically, and are the kinds of things that probably, if you grow up here, you get taught, like, at an earlier age. Like, when I was in like the class that I write about in Iowa is like eighth grade Iowa history. And it's where the teacher, like you all get on a bus Mm -hmm. one day and you drive around the whole county and you just do a tour of the county. And the teacher points out where all of the important historical things happened. Over there, there was a meeting 200 years ago and the meeting was very important for the, you know, how our like community identity works now. And over here is what this building and this building is important for these reasons. And it's like as much about like the past and the story of it as it is about like orientation and just like being able to navigate where you live and like being able to connect that sense of like feeling oriented to where you live to feeling oriented toward the, like the histories and like the, the like recursive histories of where you live and like when you and when you move though you don't have that you don't have that like kind of base anymore that baseline that like of of um where it's structural or like where where that learning is institutional and you just like guess I'm going to the library guess I'm just like gonna have to start talking to people and kind of figuring out like what are the the like local dynamics here and what are the things that like kind of Inform the way people interact with each other here, yeah. And having, to, having to do that again,
1: yeah, yeah. And I wonder how, like, how this also sort of relates as you know, even, even if you continue living in the Midwest, so much has changed. So, like, in terms of you know the intergenerational yeah. stories that you might inherit as somebody who's lived in the Midwest, or you know, or or you who yeah. lived in the Midwest and now are like living elsewhere, the ways in which you relate yeah. to those. <clears throat> especially as the context continues to change and like in some senses the midwest is exploding you know so much is happening um yeah yeah it's
2: yeah i mean i don't know it's definitely it's definitely different but it's also like i think i was trying to speak to it a little bit like writing about like my family and writing about like what it might have been like mm-hmm. for my grandpa to open a, a gas station like back in oh god, late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. what it was like for my parents to take on that kind mm-hmm. of work, what it was like for me then to be working. Like each iteration of this like one place was really different. You know, like in one iteration, it's like a full service station with like, and there's like, you know, um, there's mechanics and it's about like, the really like full spectrum of like people's automobiles. And then when I'm working there as a teenager, it's like a convenience store and like the needs of the community are a little bit different. And like the way that we serve the community is a little bit different. And um, it's just like continuing to evolve. And I feel like that's just, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to like keep in mind at the same time Mm -hmm. as like trying to think of the, the, the parallel story of a
1: different mm-hmm, place mm-hmm. entirely, but yeah, um, which is which is you know one of the many reasons your book is so fascinating, um, and I have to say, um, you know, reading it was just. I like, Camden and I were talking about this. It was just such a pleasure. Um, I really do plan to use it in class because oh. I, actually, I was just talking with a colleague about it right now and being like, you should use it. <laughs> um, just because i feel like you know we don't place I'm, I'm not sure there's enough emphasis placed on sort of just sitting with the discomfort of place you know yeah. um and yeah. and the stories we inherit or don't inherit right. um or the stories that we have to create because we are transplants um i think your book just very evocatively sort of sits with that discomfort and it's which is which is what makes it really enjoyable um mm-hmm. And, and it, you know, and I say this with the utmost respect that, we, that it, it also makes it really a quick read without necessarily yeah. meaning that you gloss over it. Like things strike me, right? Like these sentences that I like, talked about, um, about reconfiguration of, of geographies and histories, um, s- sit with me and they will sit with me for a long time because they, they sort of get at the heart of what I as an immigrant um constantly think about right like there are times where I look out like I look up from from my desk and I look out and I'm like wait what am I doing here like like you know how do I fit in here right um is this home like yeah. you know yeah. so which is one of the things I really admire about your book so I you know I, I really want to thank you for um for sharing it with us what should members take from this um, and, you know, in what ways do you think what you've written shape, um, you know, how should we think about the rural Midwest? Because we talked a little earlier about you know, how different places can look, right? So, like, how do we think about the history of the rural Midwest? Um, and, you know, are there questions you think historians, scholars um, of the Midwest could be asking more, exploring more? Yeah,
2: I mean... That's, that's wonderful. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind first is just, like, I really, like, deeply appreciate the work, like, the really rigorous work that um, so many researchers, historians, ethnographers are doing. Like, the, the like, legwork that was available, like, the published legwork, being able to, like, get on Store, go to the public library, and, like, access some of these materials is... Such a wonderful thing, and I mean, you're. I mean, it was. You kind of mentioned like it's. A, it is a short book, but I do feel like one of the challenges is like I feel like every essay in this book could or should have been its own book, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. figuring out a way of like getting deep enough into the material without having to dedicate, you know, three years of my life to each chapter. Um, but like so much amazing work is out there and I really appreciated being able to dig into it. And like, even I've been going back and listening to episodes of this podcast and, um, there was a, you guys spoke with the folks at the annals of Iowa recently. And like, I totally used old like, um, editions of that journal when I was like doing work on this. And like, I was listening to you guys all talk to, um, the author of Meatpacking America, which is just like, mm-hmm. happens to also be a University of North Carolina Press book, but it's it focuses on the meatpacking plant that I mentioned in Chapter 2, like, in Louisa County. Mm-hmm. And um, that, like, so many people are doing work that is, like, both very, very important mm-hmm. and urgent. And, like, it's not just, like, well, I now that I've published – and I go and I tell people about it, and it's kind of over. It's like just it's part of the conversation, and it's part of like what a lot of people are excited to engage with and keep thinking about. And I um, I appreciate that like there are so many like disciplines that are like really disciplined at doing this well and like making this kind of thinking available for for folks to
0: to take in. You know, I think it's it's sometimes tough to to. To sort of do an interview about a collection of essays, you bring a different perspective to a lot of similar themes that we're talking about here. And I really would encourage um, listeners to to go get a copy of *The Distance from Slaughter County* by Stephen Moore because it really is um, a delightful read. It's it, you know, I just it sort of just kept going faster and faster. Uh-huh. I think I annoyed my partner because I was just reading so much out loud to her. And be like, "This is so interesting," and then she's like, "Okay, yeah, sure." <laughs> <You> know <cool. laughs>
2: I appreciate that. That means a lot. Yeah.
0: Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us here today. We really enjoyed this conversation.
2: Yeah, I I, I really enjoyed speaking with both of you. Um, thank you so much for for having me.